This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 657 of the Dressage Radio Show, official podcast of the United States Dressage Federation on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products and Total Saddle Fit. On today's show, we talk with our friend Lauren Spicer about the problems of finding a good schoolmaster. Following that, Lendon Gray will have a great discussion about her fantastic Dressage for Kids program. We'll finish the program with a question from a listener. Reese Koffler Stanfield from Loxahatchee, Florida. And this is Philip Parks from Rockwood, Ontario, and you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show. Hi, Phil. Hey, Reese. I think we should let everybody know that we're kind of recording one week early because you're showing next week, and uh, yeah. it's a little late in the evening, and things are getting a little silly. <laughs> We, we've done two shows tonight and we both worked a long day. So yeah, you never know what will happen in the next uh, hour, but uh, I think we're, we're, we're killing it right now. So, uh, well, just, we'll get a quick update. Uh, you know, your what, what day you're going to be showing, you know, when's the jog and all of that stuff. And then, uh, We'll get right awesome. to we'll get right to we'll the program. We'll get right to it. So we are recording early um, because next week is actually a very busy week down here in Florida. We hope everyone's coming. Uh, it is the five star, and there's also a three star Grand Prix going on. So I'm doing the three star, um, which will be held at Global. The five star they have moved. I think there's 20 on the start list, and that may give or take a little bit in the next week or so. The official start lists for both have not come out yet, but the five-star will be at WEF. So they're kicking the jumpers out of the stadium on Wednesday and Friday nights. So I think it'll be really nice for all of us because um, it, it's a bigger venue than global. So hopefully they must be anticipating quite a lot of people. So we're excited if you're down visiting us in sunny Florida. And then we will have the three-star at global. So that will be fun. It'll keep us out of trouble for sure. I don't know what they'll be doing with the Grand Prix. I doubt it will be at night, the three-star. Uh, I'm doing the Grand Prix for the special. Um, and people ask me, like, how do you decide what you're going to ride? Because um, the five-star is an invitation only. So um, you have to be on the 12-month ranking list, and then they will go through uh, that. And it's just, it's an invitation only for all the countries that are involved. Or, you know, they try to get as many countries as they can. And then um, the three-star, now there are requirements for entering a U.S. CDI in the U.S. Can't just enter it. Um, Bingo and I happen to be grandfathered in. We meet the requirements as well, but we're grandfathered in from last year, which is great. So um, when you enter CDI, you still have to get permission from your national federation. And then depending on what you're qualifying for. So there's lots of things right now you can qualify for. Um, I'm pretty sure the World Cup is qualifications uh, are still open to the end of the month. Um, and that will be in April. Then you've got the World Championships that will be in August, I'm pretty sure. And then uh, there are Nations Cups. There's the European Tour. So you really have to go into your season sort of knowing what you need to do. Um, for all U.S. riders this year in the Grand Prix, and I'm pretty sure the small tour, but do not quote me on this, you have to have a 67% in a CDI. So anybody that's going for the national championships has to ride in a CDI. So that's the first requirement that I'm looking forward to getting. And once you get that, then you can sort of move forward in what you're going to do. So for the festival champions, you have to have three Grand Prix and three Grand Prix specials. So a lot of us will don't get to have the fun of the Grand Prix freestyle. You do have to ride one, but it does not have to be under the lights. And it just it's sort of checking the box, which is kind of a bummer because I love my freestyle. But right now we're just starting for the season to uh, check off what we need to. So that's my goal for next week. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting out there. We've been, again, all, all just like any horse and any competition, there's a strategy that you want to go toward each goal. So we've been working forward 
with bingo and we've been doing that in the last couple months we've you know shown some national competitions and then we do the videos and train and show again and look at the videos so um i'm looking forward to getting out there so hopefully it'll be good result for uh, the beginning of March when we come back on, but we hope you enjoy today's show and we hope that you're able to live stream all the five star, uh, the three stars also live streamed, uh, but we hope you enjoy great dressage next week at the five star. And we're going to start with the show and we hope you enjoy our show as well. She had waited all her life for this moment, dreaming about it since she was 10 years old. The trailer ramp touched the ground. He whinnied as she backed him out, swinging his head around to get a good look at his new home. His coat gleamed in the sun. Her love had arrived. She was breathless. He was beautiful. She could hardly wait to tack him up and start off on what she was sure would be the best times of her life. This love story is brought to you by Contribute, providing essential omega-3 fatty acids that help maintain low inflammation levels throughout your horse's body. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Call 859-873-2974 or visit kppusa.com to order today. Well, tonight I am so excited to have friend of the show, Lauren Spreiser, back on. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks, Reese. Well, we saw each other on, I think it was Monday. It was Monday. Um, and we're going to have a segment coming on because you hosted, and Phil's going to get a kick out of this, but you hosted a bra fitting for riders. So we are actually going to have the lady who did the bra fitting on the show. But we were chatting and... I said, what you doing on Thursday night? And she said, nothing. I'll come on the show. So we're thrilled to have you back. I'm giddy as a schoolgirl to be here hiding in my closet and talking to you all on a Thursday night. <laughs> yes, you were saying you were you were hiding. Literally, Lauren's like, oh, I don't know. She's literally one street over from where I am. So it would have been funny if we had both been hiding in the closet at my house, but not, not <laughs> happening. Um, but as a neighbor, I love it because I kind of, that's how it works around here is you kind of hide in closets and, and it's not quite the studio that I have at home, but that's okay. But Lauren, we were going to talk about something you've been blogging about and you've been chatting and it's it's on a lot of people's minds right now, especially after COVID, and that is trying to find a schoolmaster. So I wanted to kind of hand the mic to you and have you get started on that topic. Thank you very much. So this is, we're here in Wellington, Florida, and this is the time of year where, Reese, I'm sure your phone is ringing, and and Philip, I know you're at home up in Canada, but the same deal, your phone is ringing, people are looking for horses. And particularly here in Wellington, everybody comes in December and January and February because it's an easy place to come see a bunch of horses. And I don't do a ton of sales myself, but my phone has been off the hook with people looking for schoolmasters from which to learn. And again, I don't do a ton of sales, but it's just seemed like in the last couple of years, there have been way more phone calls and way fewer horses available. And I got to thinking about why. And I started doing math, which is dangerous territory for me as a liberal arts major horse trainer. (laughs) (laughs) But I started thinking about what was going on in the world when the horses that would be the schoolmasters of today were born. So bear with me here. It's 2022. And let's say that the general ballpark, give or take, on schoolmaster type horses, they're between 11 and 16 years old, right? Give or take. Yeah. Yeah. So the the schoolmasters of today, if they're 11, they were born in 2011, which means that they were conceived in 2010. And if they're 16, then they were born in 2006. Am I doing the math on that right? Yes. You are. Yeah, you're close. Yes. (laughs) Which means that they were, you know, conceived in 2005. The bottom of the economy fell out, the housing market fell out, and the economy collapsed here in the United States between 2008 and 2010. It was a really, really grim scene. And certainly for horse breeders, I know a lot of breeders who left Mare's Baron, who got out of breeding entirely, certainly who bred more sort of economical types of horses, maybe more, you know, sort of low-level amateur-friendly horses instead of trying to go for something that might be an FEI horse, in those years, and that the people who had horses in that three, four, five-year-old range at that time 
were a heck of a lot less likely to go and get professional help in starting them down their dressage paths during those years because the money just wasn't there for them to do it. And while schoolmasters are not made at three, of course, certainly successful dressage horses have pressure put on them in a positive way between three and six. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, riding them like Grand Prix horses, but you've at least closed your leg and closed your seat and closed your hand. And for the people who maybe had a three or four year old horse during those years and weren't up to the task on their own, those horses got a little bit lost in the shuffle and were therefore a lot less likely to get to FEI as adult horses and a lot less likely to be available as a schoolmaster for purchase now. And that was totally just something I was thinking about. I had no data on the subject. It just sort of felt, it felt possible, but it was interesting. I wrote a little blog about it and I got email from people who were saying, yeah, absolutely. I work for the jockey club and we registered 40% fewer foals in those years than we had before. Same for the AQHA, same for the American Arabian Horse Association, the big, big breeders of not dressage horses in this country, but certainly the big breeders of horses in this country. Their numbers were way, way, way down. And fast forward 10 years, here we are in 2022, having done really quite a good job of making dressage cooler and more fun and more interesting to riders with a supply and demand problem. Yeah, I think it's that it's not only just an American problem, but um, I think worldwide, that's sort of something that happened. Um, I think you could do a, you know, do a quick research in the Hanoverian society, like in all of the European World Blood societies. I think that was, um, you know, at least anecdotally, you know, in touring Europe and and whatever. I think there was less horses, and and you know, and in coming back and with the riders that we've been, you know, helping. I think the it seems like lately the the rider numbers, you know, kind of surged up until 2020, in which that was a whole new economic and and problematic thing. But uh, yeah, there's just there's no horses. There really yeah. isn't. Um, you can see in in Europe how the prices at the auctions are are have just gone up and up and up and up. And that's you know, like you said, supply and demand. That's just how economics works. And so. Um, I do think there's still, you know, good schoolmaster horses, but they're not readily available and they're not, um, affordable at all at this point. So yeah, there's a bit of an issue, you know, how, how do you, how do you create an FEI trained horse that's going to teach somebody when you, you know, it's a 15 year commitment to be doing that. Yeah, yeah so. and particularly, you know, all of us are FEI trainers. We're all making horses as fast as we can, but <laughs> You know, we didn't we didn't start with 50 of them 20 years ago. If we did, we would be very well off right now. <laughs> Although we yeah. might have well, been pretty tired, pretty tired. <laughs> yeah, yeah tired, have. tired for sure. <laughs> no, but it's very true, right? Like you can have horses, right? And you're making horses. And and that's the thing, right? To make a schoolmaster is not, a, you know, it, a cheap endeavor, right? It really is kind of the most economical decision. And I heard this from a very good trainer years ago. The best decision you can make is to buy an already made pre-St. George horse because they've already gone through all of the the young horse things and going to their first horse show and all of those things that take not only money, but time. And that's where we're hitting. And And I don't know about you guys, but certainly in the last two years, certain once lessons opened in Kentucky, I taught, I have taught more riding lessons from people that maybe took one lesson a week or, or whatever, but that they have taken and, and the amount of lessons is incredible. And those are the people that also want to buy horses now because they're having fun, their skill levels going well, and, you know, maybe their horse is lame or they're ready to, to go on to the next level. And it, right now, they're, they don't exist. And if they do exist and they're out there, they're probably not hitting the open market. Um, I don't know how you guys feel, but typically they're now sold in house. I've had two come on the market and I didn't even, we didn't advertise them. We didn't need yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I just sold two of the best horses of my life without, without placing a single ad or making a single phone call. Yeah. Yeah because you just can't. So, so if they do become available, it's one of those things. It's kind of like houses as well. Right now you have to buy them. You can't hesitate really. Cause if you hesitate, there's 10 other people in line because literally 
every day I'm like, Lauren, we get calls for amateur friendly 16 hands to 17 hands, you know, that can do a flying change. And they just, they are not out there right now. And if you have one, good for you. Yep. Hold your price. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, hold, hold your price. And yeah. certainly that that brings us into the conversation of with the prices. I mean, they're wild. They're certainly wild here in Wellington. I've I've heard some truly bananas, preposterous numbers. How do people that don't have that kind of access that don't have those kinds of resources keep from jumping off a bridge? How do they keep going when when you know three hundred thousand dollar horses are not something they could ever afford in their lifetime? If hundred thousand dollar horses are not something they could ever afford in their lifetime, how do we encourage them along? Because I've heard some pretty wacko prices on young horses as well. Yeah, I, th- I mean, what I've been uh, advising my students and and whatever is is just you know to have patience and actually acquire maybe not a young young horse, but an uneducated horse that has you know a good solid base, and sort of le- leave it with me and I'll train it, you know, because if for for lack of other options, th- that's maybe you know the way you have to go. It's, not the, it's I, not the best way, like like you said, Reese. I mean, in a perfect world, you just you you go out and buy what you want, and 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 there you go, and you show it, you have fun, you have lessons, and whatever. I mean, but uh, if if that's not possible, feasible, then the other the other option is you know to yep. to have somebody train a horse for you and 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 to and and to be patient and. And And be part of the process and enjoy the process. So, I mean, I think, I know, I know, I think all three of us have done this, right? We have bought younger horses than we wanted to. I, you know, I, I bought a three-year-old this fall. Not something I want. I don't want a three-year-old. I'm not good with three-year-olds. I bought a foal. Yeah. You bought a foal. Lauren, (laughs) I know because you and I were having these conversations about young horses is finding young horses. That's getting harder and harder. I'm singing a different song now because I have decided I will never buy anything for myself unless it is, I mean, extraordinary. I'm only going to buy three years old and younger from now on because I want to be able to screw them up my own personal way instead of fixing other people's screw ups. I'm sure. super good with my screw ups. I do them every day. Yeah. yeah at, least, I mean, at least then you know the origins of, you know, what's yep. gone wrong or, how, or whatever. Yeah, how I mean. we arrived in this place of failure. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's the thing. And and even trying to find a three-year-old or, or younger, I mean, it is incredibly expensive and all of us, we have quite a network in your, you know, we have sources that, and yep. even that is difficult right now, but exactly. I agree. I think you have to go younger and you have to be a part of the process and you have to enjoy the process. And I think at the end of the day, that is what training horses is, is it's, it's the process. It's, it's the journey. It's the marathon. It's all those things that we all deal with all the time. And, and I think that is part of it. And, and it may be that you want to ride, you have to buy a three-year-old, but you have to pay someone to ride it. I pay someone to ride my own three-year-old. I don't (laughs) ride it. I've sat on it once in my indoor and I was like, it's lovely. I'll ride it when I get home from Florida. <laughs> Take it outside. Make it there, make yeah, it good. You've got to be creative with your options and patient yeah. uh, with your time. You know, I, I know a couple of situations where, you know, somebody wanted to ride right now, you know, didn't have the big money. So then bought a horse that she could ride at home, but uh, couldn't couldn't take to a horse show because it was on, you know, some some medications from time to time, some steroid for, for breathing problems or whatever. And, and that, that was a bit of a, not a disappointment, but a compromise to say, you know, this is a, you know, well-trained upper level horse, but he's got to be on this. And this means you probably won't be able to show it. And, and for lots of people, that's fine, right? Because they only, they only ride dressage and learn dressage for the sake of it and not for a competitive goal. And, and, and that's fine too. But, uh, you, you know, you've got to find, be creative and, f- and find different ways to achieve certain goals. And the way that I frame it, Philip, to my students is exactly what you just said. You know, certainly showing is fun, but no matter what you're doing, you're learning. And so when the horse comes along that's in your price point and suits your needs on all fronts, except that it needs an illegal under USEF rules steroid to breathe, then that's going to teach you a ton of skills that you get to bring to the next horse. I have many students for years, not just in these more recent COVID times, but people of more limited means or people who decide that they would rather do the young horse thing 
and we do it together. And maybe it takes two, you know, two years longer. Maybe it takes 10 years longer. Maybe it means that there are weeks where I say, Hey, Betty, listen, I need some time with the horse to put the changes on, or I need some time with the horse to sort out this teenage anger management nonsense about the right leg or whatever. But then I'll pop you back on as soon as I possibly can. Uh, I have people who've done it with their horses at home and they, those horses come to me for a few weeks in the summertime or a few weeks when the weather gets crappy. And then I start the changes or start the pee off or whatever. And they always teach their rider something. Maybe it's the FEI goal. Maybe it's the tailcoat dream, but certainly it's skills that let you approach the next horse better educated than you were when you began with this one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think we all right now need to get creative and we need to encourage breeders <laughs> because I, <laughs> I'm not somebody that likes to breed horses, right? I, I tried it. It wasn't for me, uh, but we need breeders. And I think that that is hopefully, you know, they will see the market and they'll be breeding more horses because, you know, it is a worldwide market now. And that totally changes things. So it'll be interesting to see in the next few years if we can get more horses being bred. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't see them ever getting cheaper because that's just not the way things work. But, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, the inflation and and whatever, hay costs more and and, and whatever. So it's not that you're going to get a, a, a cheaper foal because there's more of them. But uh, just certainly having opportunities of of horses to train and and you know American bred, Canadian bred, warm bloods that will be successful in the FEI. I think that's that's all of our dream, you know. And uh, um, we just have to encourage that to to move forward. And you know that that's all we can do. And to think outside of the warm blood box too. I assure you that I'm a snob and all I own are warm bloods for myself. But that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that goes out there. And for an amateur person who doesn't have the money for a warm blood, I have a student who was the USDF National Reserve Grand Prix Freestyle Champion on a full papered Morgan that she trained herself. I have another student who's a great friend of mine who got a 10-year-old Welsh Cobb thoroughbred cross for four figures, and she rode in pre St. George over time. And those horses absolutely. are that, that's that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, that's a great point, Lauren. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely they they don't have we don't have to just stick stick to warm bloods. Um, you know, and, and again, just thinking out of the box of you know what's your budget, what's your goals, you know how do, how do we move forward with a plan? And I think that people also need to figure out how to maximize their own particular situation. I had a horse that at the time was done being my Grand Prix horse, but wasn't quite ready to be done. And I had a cool scrappy kid in my barn of limited resources. I was happy to lease the horse to them because it took their expen- the horse's expenses off my plate and gave the kid a great opportunity. And the kid winning at horse shows made me look really smart. Uh, I have traded people board and training for doing my taxes, for being my physical therapist. There's there's all kinds of opportunities for people to maximize where their money is going in the development of their horses that isn't necessarily just in writing the check for the trained horse. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Well, Lauren, as always, you just bring such great discussion to the show and you've got amazing blogs how can our listeners find it online? I am pretty much everywhere at Lauren Spreiser. And you can also see me on my website, which is spreisersporthorse.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lauren, for great discussions tonight. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Hi, I'm April. And I am Laura. And we are the hosts of the Rain in Your Herd podcast where we help with building an online presence for your equine business. So this can include online marketing, social media, blogs, YouTube, online memberships, courses, Facebook ads, and websites. We give you the tips you need to dive in on these subjects and also interview other equine business owners who are doing it well. We have a lot of fun doing it. So we hope to see you over on Rain in Your Herd. Well, tonight we are so honored to have back on the show, Lyndon Gray. She really needs no introduction. She is the fearless leader of the Dressage for Kids program. And I had the honor to go and chat with her group this week. Lyndon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Reese. And we loved having you. The kids loved it. Oh, they were so much fun. I, I, I love coming every year. And Lyndon, tell us a little bit about your WIT program and also the Dressage for Kids program, if our listeners don't know about it. 
Okay. Well, Dressage for Kids, which has been going now for 23 years, is a program I started uh, along with Fern Feldman, who's uh, vice president of Dressage for Kids. As first, it started as a show. And our show, in a nutshell, the meat of the show is a dressage test, an equitation class, and a written test on assigned reading. So everything D4K does, Dressage for Kids does, uh, has an educational component, even our competition. And we've expanded into all sorts of different things over the years. A weekend program of lectures that we do up in Connecticut every year. We now have other shows in different parts of the country that follow our basic format that we sponsor. We have probably the one of the most active parts of it is what we call the TEAM program, TEAM standing for Training, Education, and Mentoring, which is we do clinics all around the country. I do most of them, but not all of them. And they're normally two-day clinics with lessons, with some written tests on basic knowledge, and every day there's uh, two lectures. So again, the educational component is a big part of it. And then that expanded 10 years ago into what we call the WIT program, which stands for Winter Intensive Training. And we do that here in Wellington, Florida. It's kind of like a team program for three solid months. We have, this year I have 13. We've had anywhere from 12 to 15 kids from all parts of the country and even Canada, Trinidad, various places. And they come with a horse for three months. I do most of the teaching, but we have guest instructors. They get lessons five days a week. They have lectures every day. Uh, and they do fitness uh, workouts every day. We have a workout program. And so that's what I'm, I'm in Wellington right now uh, doing, doing that. And one of, another one of our programs that has, it just kind of happened by accident almost. We became a, a 501c3, which means we can take donations for people that want to support us, but we can also take horses as donations. And it happened, again, sort of by accident, but now we've had almost 100 horses that have been donated to Dressage for Kids. And the way it works is someone contacts me that they're interested in donating a horse, and we don't accept a horse until we know where it's going to go. That means someone is going to sign a contract that they will keep this horse forever unless with our agreement the horse is passed on to someone else. So these horses know where they're going to be retired. And we've had everything from sort of the fat little beginner's pony to good old boys that take the riders up to maybe second level and then might be passed on to somebody else, right up to some very, very lovely Grand Prix horses. Sometimes because they've had an injury and some one of of our program is willing to take the chance to continue their rehab and bring them along. That's been very successful in several cases. We've had some lovely horses that have been given to us because for one reason or another, the owner can no longer ride and they want to support a young person by donating the horse to us and see the horse continue to be used in a good way. Sometimes they're horses that have a little problem, either a behavioral problem or maybe a schooling problem. And again, we only accept it when we find someone who will lease the horse from us that's willing to deal with the problem. And I would say that 99% of the leases, the donation and then leases, have been successful. We've had a few that didn't quite work out for one reason or another, but um, we're pretty careful of what we accept and to whom the horse goes. So we've had horses that have represented the United States and Europe as a young rider, you know, some really lovely ones and some good old boys, but what a fantastic opportunity someone has, by donating the horse to us, has given a young rider, although a few of them have also gone to adults, but mostly young riders, either beginners to come up or, you know, wonderful schoolmaster types. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that kind no, of in a nutshell is D4K. And and you also host um educational events for young professionals, but also anybody professional riders, right? Yes. Well, exactly. a few years ago we we started what we call training for teaching. And that was a program that has gone for three years so far that is geared towards one of my concerns 
Most people out there teaching are like myself. We were successful as riders and trainers of horses. And so we ended up teaching. And uh, maybe we're, some people are sort of gifted as teachers, but most of us have zero education in how to teach. Uh, not what to teach. That's not so difficult. That's what you've already learned by being a rider, but how to present it and, and how to run lessons and organize them and and learning styles from different people that different people have and so forth. So that program was started with, with that in mind. Uh, we had been doing it every year at our winter educational program that we did, uh, we do up in Connecticut. And then last year, well, we did two years where we did it here in Wellington face to face. And then, and this is where COVID did something good for us because then we went online and we were able to reach many, many more people all over the world were, were coming into our Zoom calls. It's amazing. And and you can give a donation for those, uh, correct? I mean, but it doesn't have to be a large donation. I'm sure everything counts. And um, and every little bit helps. Yep. Yeah, you get the Zoom link, and they're on Monday evenings. And for anyone that's at home, that it's an amazing program. You have great speakers. I highly recommend them. They are phenomenal. Um, and and that's even during COVID. I mean, I look forward to them. I still look forward to them because you know where I was home, I was teaching a lot, and I really, really love that program. So we, we will make sure at the end of our discussion, you'll give all your information out so we can find okay. find more. But we also just wanted to talk about, I mean, I, I have had riders that have received horses from D4K and truly uh, one now is a professional rider and she got her gold medal. She trained the horse to Grand Prix and is really an amazing young professional. And that is such a cool experience for a young person. But can you talk about too just just having the opportunity to have a young person lease a horse or a schoolmaster for a year or six months? Can you talk about the benefits of that? Well, the, um, you know, with our program, we someone has to take on a horse as if they're buying it, and that makes it impossible for some young people who don't have a way, for example, to retire a horse. So the people that are out there that are willing to lease a horse to these young riders for six months, a year, two years, several years. What a tremendous opportunity it is for those young people to get. I mean, there's no better way to learn than with a horse that knows more than you. I I always say one of the partnership of horse and rider, one needs to know more than the other. So in the beginning, ideally, we have a, a green rider on a horse that can help them learn. And then eventually that rider becomes, comes experience. And then they're ready to bring along a horse that doesn't know much, but to have that opportunity to ride a quality horse or a well-trained horse, it's also quality is, is wonderful to help these people move on and, and get, get the experience. It's so difficult to try to learn to do something on a horse that doesn't really know what you're asking. You don't know if your aids are correct. You don't know if you're sitting correctly. Is it not working because of you? Or is it not working because the horse just hasn't quite figured out what to do in the beginning? So to have that horse that you, if if you do it right, you know it's going to work. Is a is yeah. A huge, well, I was just I was just going to say like that's where you know the European riders are so far advanced as you know as to our North American riders is because they have access to these schoolmasters whether they're you know, boarded at a local riding club or, you know, and, and, and the, the top riders are passing them along and, and, you exactly. know, and, and you can, you can learn that. And, and this is such a, you know, there's a great thing that, you know, that North America has you around to sort of scope out these horses and, and, and give them a transition to younger riders. And so I, I, I just have a question about like, are you in charge of the management of the horse once, you know, once it's matched with a rider um, you know, who is keeping an eye on the situation? We keep an eye on it. Generally, when I'm looking for a potential rider for a horse that's been offered to us, m- almost all the time I know who the trainer is as well. That's part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and most of the time I know these riders personally. So I, you know, I know what type of care they're going to give. 
And uh, but we do also check check in on them for sure. We know yeah. on a regular basis where where the horse is and who's looking after it and with whom the rider is training. So, and then I had a a, a different question. I mean, you've got uh, some young people uh, down in Florida with you every every winter. Um, you know, what is the what is the target age range that uh, that you're looking at there? Well, this year my youngest is 11. And the oldest is 24. We go up to 25. And generally, every year, we have that kind of an age stretch. Okay. And also, we've got training-level horses this this year and most years, the training-level horse right up to Grand Prix. And okay. uh, the, the, the variety of age and level is very useful because the older ones help the younger ones. Uh, the more advanced ones are role models in the riding for those coming along and so, and so forth. I met the 11-year-old. Oh, my gosh. She's <laughs> as cute as a button. Oh, my goodness. And she is a spitfire. Let me tell you, she had the best she questions. She is as cute as a button. Yep. So how is, she, how is she getting schooled? Not in the horses, but in... Uh, well, in a lot the- of them. I would say at least half of them, probably a little more than half are in school, whether they're in, you know, middle school or college and they're they all work with their schools and and of course nowadays the last couple of years with so schools going online so much it's not as difficult in the past it tended to be a little more difficult but most of them are doing schoolwork along with everything they're doing with our program they're sleeping well i uh, guarantee it school yeah became a thing (laughs) in 2020 and it's just like it doesn't matter where you are right yeah yeah oh yeah so, so, and some of them, you know, occasionally someone will be taking, a, you know, a time off between high school and college or, you know, a semester off of college. But uh, again, I, most of them are doing schoolwork and you'll see them. You go through the stable when they're not riding, you'll see somebody sitting on a trunk with, with uh, a school book that they're reading. Or sometimes they come to me because we have to monitor an exam that they're taking. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell them the very first day that school has to come first. I'm a strong believer in that. And occasionally one will come to me and say, you know, I'm starting to get behind. I need to take a day off to catch up with school. And I'm a hundred percent for that school has to take precedence. So anyone that comes has to be a self-starter. They have to have good self-discipline to be successful, not just in our program, but because of school and fitting everything in. I love it. I love it. And and Linda, we chatted about this too. Now that I have a, a young rider in my life, my niece is eight and a half and just starting uh-huh. pony club. So, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to to learn about horses. And that was one of the things we were chatting about is, you know, with young people these days, really learning horsemanship. And, yeah. um, it is it is really a problem now and 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 again i i i see it because now i'm i'm a little more involved with my niece i i don't have children myself but i i work with my niece and we're we're working on pony club and and we're starting and net talk to us a little bit about you know if you have kids or you're trying to get your kid involved you know what are some things that the little ones should be learning so that we can make really good horse people horsemen women at the end of the day well, um, it's actually why I started Dressage for Kids, because I was, I would go to the North American Championships every year, and this is back, you know, in the 1990s, and I was as guilty as anyone. Uh, you know, you would get a kid, they'd get a nice schoolmaster, and you work very hard to get them ready to ride that horse in that test and that those tests for the North American Championships, and that was kind of it. And as someone... My mom started a pony club when I was seven, so I, I grew up with pony club. And the the knowledge other than the riding, which is so strong with pony club, you know, the, the riding lessons depend so much on who the volunteers are in the local club, but the knowledge that they get, I was just not seeing the young, young people getting general stable management and uh, general riding theory and all of that, that is is what makes you successful throughout your life. And uh, it really hit me hard more recently in the WIT program, in the winter program, they have reading, required reading and some tests. So a few years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to make the first test really easy. And I gave them a test on parts of the horse because doesn't everybody know parts of the horse? I was horrified. 
at these kids that are riding, you know, fourth level, pre-St. George, training horses, even some of them are, you know, beginning professionals, did not know the parts of the horse. And um, that's when it just struck me. And, for example, with the, the team clinics that I do, I do about 25 a year around the country. Everybody has to do a parts of the horse test. Um, I mean, how much more basic of your horse knowledge does it get than, than knowing where the Gaskin is and, and the pastern and the pole. Um, so, you know, it, it's a little scary to me that they're not getting that knowledge and where can they get that knowledge unless they're self-motivated enough to dig it up. And if somebody doesn't encourage them to do it, why would they think to do it? And so whether it's just basic knowledge of the horse breeds colors, you know, basic, basic stuff that I think I knew when I was seven or eight through pony club or the riding theory. Um, do you know exactly why you're doing what with the horse? Do you know the best approach to get to it? Uh, basic veterinary knowledge. Are you going to know when your horse, something's not quite right? Uh, do you know what his normal temperature is? Do you, can you see or feel an unevenness in your horse? Do you know how to check for, for soreness, heat, pain, swelling? Um, and where are they going to get it? If they're being brought up to ride, if they're, you know, the, one of the best places once they become of age to start getting knowledge is as a working student, I think. But even in a working student program, is that person with whom they're working encouraging them to get more book knowledge, not just what they're doing and how to muck a stall and how to put on a bandage and and thinking about feeding and, and so forth, you know, how much, how in depth is that getting? And, um, I'm just worried yeah, I think, that. Yeah. I was just, uh, I, I, you know, that. I'm thinking that, you know, Reese and I, and you probably obtained all of your knowledge from, from parents who were involved in horses. And I mean, I grew up on a farm with a few horses. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, what I see now is parents just kind of dropping their kids off at, at the barn, right. right? Or, or you know, even if they aren't dropping them off, but they're there, but they're, they're coming from families with absolutely no horse knowledge. And so they're only getting the horse knowledge from the place that they're taking lessons and the place that they're taking lessons is not involving them in, you know, you ride for your 45 minutes and then, and then, you know, you get off and you go yeah. home, you know, and, and I, I encourage people. And um, this is because I would just, was very involved in our Canadian certification progress process that we actually do have a, a plan to you know bring bring the the other side of things the, the, so we have eight nine ten rider levels in which you know if you're if you're riding at a at a schooling barn they're encouraged that the schooling barn is you know is being involved in this process as well but it's hard it's it's really hard because the the schooling barns are i mean they're they're involved in making money right and so it's volume right. of kids through the lessons and you know the, but you know there there is there is more to it right and every there's such pressure you know we we've got to get to the regional championships we've got to get to the north american championships we've got to qualify for this and the all of the effort and time and money that goes into developing you as a rider where's the pressure to develop you as a horseman right right you know there's no nobody talks nobody talks about it nobody pushes for it let's you know how can i got to get a better horse i've got to get a new riding instructor i've got to get to this show um i wish there was some way we could get the the energy that goes in that direction Mm -hmm. also into their knowledge. That's well, and, 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 and I shared this with you, Lyndon, you know, it's funny because my niece, you know, my sister would come and ride at my barn. Right. And, 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 and I love kids. It has nothing, but most of my barn is adult amateur ladies, or I have a lot of college mm -hmm. girls that are there, but I don't have a lot of little kids. 
Um, it's just the way, it, just yeah. how we are. We're, we're changing this now because I have a little one now that, that I want to make <laughs> a good horse person. But my niece yeah. said to my sister and I, I, I was having a pony club event. We always have one in the fall and do pizza and all the things. And, um, we had my niece come and my niece said to me, she goes, aunt Reese, I didn't know other children rode horses. <laughs> I yeah. looked at my sister and my sister looked at me and we're both like, Oh my goodness, we have failed <laughs> because yeah. she wouldn't have known that. You know, my sister and I, we grew up together riding. So we were our own little unit and we and brought, you know, friends came to our farm. We had a farm, sure. but this was different. My niece didn't know that that was even a thing. And oh, it broke yeah. my heart. Yeah. I was like, oh, so we quickly you know, we, we have changed this and she's, she's on pony club and, and, and she does the quiz now and she's really having a good time. And so I think that's so important to get, if you can, your child to the right location. Cause I was not the right location for my niece. As hard as that is to say, I wasn't the right place because that's not where there were kids and ponies. And, um, you know, and, and it is a huge responsibility because, uh, like Phil said, you know, my niece has to take care of her pony. Like that's just, that's the rule. So, um, but you know, now that we've gotten her into the right location with the right people, um, it's been much better and she's having a blast and she enjoys the social aspect, but we're pretty, you know, you can imagine my sister and I were like, you know, what, what is this and what are you doing and why do you do it? And, but it is a responsibility too with the little ones that somebody oh, and, and, and they want to learn, right? They want to yeah. learn. And, I mean, they yeah. don't want to do math homework, but if you give them a book with the parts yeah. of the horse, they'll study that <laughs> yeah. thing for for years, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. oh, or, yeah. or any other subject yeah. matter around, you know, something that they like to do. I mean, so um, it's not that they, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to know the colors or what. I mean, they're so they're so curious and they're just so, yeah. so much sponges of knowledge about these things. And if they can get that knowledge at that age, because as they get a little older, they're likely to get so focused on training, qualifying. The competitive aspects. Yeah. yeah, the competitive. The competitive aspect of it. And, and um, that, that's, that's the age where I feel the emphasis isn't enough on, on the yeah. knowledge. On the knowledge. Um, and I see it. I see it with the group that I have in the team clinics. I see it in the group that I have in the winter. You know, they're, they're for, for how well they ride and how much experience many of them have, there's a hole in, with most of them in their basic knowledge about, about the horse and the care of the horse. Mm-hmm. This is such a tough sport. Is there any other sport out there where you can spend so little time doing the actual sport. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You and, know, and I, I mean, think, how many, yeah. you, you can't do 40, 45 pirouettes to, a day to figure out how to ride a pirouette or, you know, mm-hmm. 97 shoulders in, you can't do that to the horse. So it's a tough sport, but the way well, I look and all at the it, time, there's only the so care. much time. Yeah. Yeah. There's only so much time you can spend riding. So let's spend, time on our fitness and our knowledge. I love it. I love it. Well, so Lyndon, give us all your information. How do our listeners find you online from, um, your little ones to the wit program, to the teacher for training? Like, tell us everything. Give us all the, all the places. Well, we have a website, not the fanciest, but utilitarian website, um, dressage four. That's the number four dressageforkids.org and all of our programs are on there and including how to uh, support us financially or otherwise with donations which we're always grateful because we keep all of our expenses to to the kids to an absolute minimum and lose money on a lot of our programs so we need the support well we hope we can send it your way kids.org dressageforkids.org. Well, Lyndon, thank you so much as always. And thanks for all that you do. And we so appreciate your time tonight. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Well, Phil, as always, we talk about all the products from Total Saddle Fit and we love them and we use them and we have tested them. And I, as always, don't take the best care of mine. I hose mine off, which Justin would die. But I love my girths and I love my stability stirrup leathers. We use them on all our saddles, on all our horses. So we field test them, don't we? 
Absolutely. I mean, we're using them every day and, uh, you know, they, they hold up great. I do take a little bit better care of, um, you know, my girths and, and, and stuff. Uh, I do not hose them, but I can't in the, in this weather anyways. So, uh, yeah, the, the fleece girth liners are great for the winter. I mean, the, the way of interchanging the liners on the girths is fantastic. It's revolutionary, I believe. So, um, you know, you can check them out on totalsaddlefit.com. This week's dressage training tip is brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, home of the shoulder relief girth at totalsaddlefit.com. Well, for this week's Total Saddle Fit tip of the week, Phil, you have a listener question for us, and I'm going to let you read it. <laughs> great. Um, thank you for the question. This is great. We can add content to our show. It's a bit of a long email message, but uh, the point is this. She's working on counter canter, so it must be developing, you know, sort of towards the first level. The horse is pretty good at flying changes. So there's a problem here is when she has to show uh, the counter canter through first level and then second level. You know, she's got the loop, but the horse isn't strong enough or balanced enough for, uh, you know, a 20 meter circle in counter canter. So, or, or, you know, the full serpentine loop that you have to do in second level. You know, what are some exercises that will introduce the horse towards counter canter without being, uh, you know, just counter canter on a 20 meter loop, I think, or like a 20 meter yeah, curve. a 20 meter circle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I think this is a pretty, uh, this is a pretty common question, actually. Um, and a lot of times, especially if you have a schoolmaster, that horse really likes changes because I can guarantee that horse has been petted a lot for doing flying changes. So, um, horses, once they learn flying changes, a lot of times they're like, I got this. I know exactly what you want me to do. So number one, if that's the case, I always tell people you really, really have to watch your seat. Okay. Because if you change or if you move your seat slightly, that horse is going to think flying change. So I always tell my riders, especially if they have schoolmasters, we have to really focus on the seat. And sometimes it's really, um, uh, it's a gut check moment a little bit. You're like, I didn't move. And the horse did a flying change. So you definitely moved. Um, <laughs> so I think some of it is learning that in, in the body awareness of the positioning of your legs and how your seat needs to be in the canter. That's number one. Number two, when you're teaching or working on counter canter, uh, agreed, I, I I love to follow the progression of the tests. So I like the idea of going across the short diagonal. And then um, I love second level test one, right? Where you canter the short diagonal and then you counter canter for about 30 meters. Or maybe it's maybe it's not quite that long. And you do a transition to trot and then a quick transition to walk. I think that's a great exercise. And I think one that is sort of overlooked. So you can sort of develop that exercise for you and your horse that you can eventually make it across the short side without doing the transition. So you would go counter canter, short diagonal, and then canter as long as you feel like your horse is balanced in the counter canter and do a transition to walk. Or if you can then go through the short side, doing that I think is wonderful. The other thing that I recommend to people is sometimes if you're working on counter canter, get out of the 20 by 60 meter arena if it's possible. Um, so sometimes we'll go out to the field and we'll work counter canter. And if the horse feels like they're going to break, we'll do a 10 meter circle. So let's say we're counter cantering. We're doing a short diagonal on the right lead and um, you would counter canter straight and then do a 10 meter circle to the right to rebalance the horse and maybe go a little bit straighter. Again, it uh, depends on the real estate of the arena or in your place where you're riding. You need a little bit bigger space. So sometimes I think that exercise can help. So those are two exercises that came to mind quickly. Bill, what do you have for us? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I know about this. Uh, you know, the, the problem is that the indoor arena is a little bit tight. You know, what are some yeah. things I can do in a smallish arena while it's the winter that, that kind of situation where, um, you know, you don't really have the space to put in, you know, to put in a long enough loop to, to rebalance the horse. So um, what, you, what I prefer to do here in this situation is to work on 
um, walk to canter transitions. I mean, if your horse hasn't figured, you know, if uh, canter to walk, that's fine. But walk to canter is a good place to start um, in that you have to be uh, really looking at the straightness of your transition and the quality of your aids so that the horse can, you know, be encouraged to canter out of walk and not get crooked. So this is something you can do uh, on a straight side, with, you know, using the wall to kind of keep your straightness and then, you know, uh, and have a real definite inside leg and outside leg, um, a real definite outside rein. So the problem is uh, usually that in the canter, your horse has too much inside bend, um, which makes the counter canter really, really hard because then, you know, like uh, you're coming towards the center of the arena at X and then you want to go back towards the wall. Um, but in that moment, the horse is actually being asked to bend and turn the opposite way, which causes which causes the lead change. So before you can develop a little bit of outside suppleness, which is what you need, you need to be able to turn the horse back towards the wall or, you know, or, you know, to generate, to generate correct counter canter, you have to be able to counter bend, which is really hard in, in a horse that knows how to change or, or really in a horse that loses balance when you try to take its nose and its hind leg away from the inside. So just really focus on straightness and that you can pick up, you know, just the inside lead at first, but then along the wall, you should be able to then work on picking up the outside lead. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're, if you're straight, 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 it shouldn't matter, um, you know, which lead you ask for because it, the horse should have no preference for a lead. It's just the aids. And so as you kind of define your straightness, and then define the aids that create the lead, you're, you're furthering the horse's education about balance and, uh, you know, inside leg and outside leg, which is, you know, how you define which lead you want and, you know, seat bone and reins and, you know, but um, in the beginning, if you can just simplify, you know, this leg back means this lead and this leg back means that lead, then you're really, you're going to further the horse's education without even doing any counter canter but you're just working on the balance that will get you towards the counter canter. So it's a, you know, in, in some ways it's, you know, walk to canter is a little bit more advanced, but in other ways it's, it's, it's less advanced because you're simplifying the, you know, your aid for whichever lead you want, which will help you when you, when you go to create counter canter, um, you know, when, when that the horse knows, Oh, that leg is back. So, so I shouldn't switch leads or I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't uh, be swapping out. And, and when the rider can keep themselves equally balanced on the inside and outside, you're going to be much further ahead when you're trying to counter canter. So it's, yeah. it's about, yeah. it's about like what reset is about, you know, knowing where your seat is and, and all of those things, but also knowing which lead, you know, and, and educating the horse along the same path. I think, I think that's, that's the way I would approach it because you can't do any, any curves on the horse yet. Uh, other than that shallow loop, which is great. You're working on that. That's great. Mm -hmm. So then you have to kind of take the curve out of the horse to to help help you. You have to straighten before you can counterbend, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great approach as well. So as always, we love questions. Keep sending them our way and we'll answer them when we get them. Well, as always, we love email and Facebook shout outs. Keep them coming. And you can find our show notes and links to today's guests on our website, dressageradio.com. Like us on Facebook, just search Dressage Radio Show. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. My website is maplecrestfarmky.com and my email is reese at horseradionetwork.com. I think the best way to find me is probably through Facebook or my email is philip at horseradionetwork.com. I'd like to thank our sponsors for allowing us to put on a good show. That's Kentucky Performance Products and Total Saddle Fit. If you'd like to support our show and the Horse Radio Network, you can do that through the auditor program found at www.horseradionetwork.com. As always, keep your heels down and your shoulders back, and we can't wait to talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.